Now this evening we come to this book of Amos, and with it we have reached the third of the twelve minor prophets. It's very interesting to note the order in which finally the Holy Spirit has placed these twelve books. It's a seed, the stern and necessarily severe message of Amos, we needed the softer tones of both Hosea and Joel. And not only that, but it is very interesting the way we have been prepared to examine and to understand the subject of judgment. It's as if the Holy Spirit has very gradually brought us to this point. I think because there are so many weirdly distorted conceptions about God's judgment, about divine judgment, because of our own vindictiveness, because of our own self-centeredness, so often because there's a poison in us, which has made something, anything to do with judgment, hateful, and if we inflict upon anyone something which we legitimately are entitled to, we usually do it with a certain amount of vindictiveness uh, and uh, nastiness. There's some malice behind it. Consequently, it's very, very hard for us to understand uh, and to conceive what divine judgment is. Uh, it's hard for us somehow to dissociate ourselves and detach ourselves from what we are and how we see this question of judgment and really see it as the scripture presents us, presents it to us. It's very interesting that the Holy Spirit should have taken such care and diligence over the way he leads us into an examination of this matter. Um, this is particularly interesting because, of course, Amos precedes uh, Hosea chronologically. And therefore, we would have expected that Amos should indeed be the first of the twelve, or at least the second, following after Joel. But instead, the Holy Spirit has put Hosea first, and then Joel, and then Amos. With those merciful and unbelievably tender tones of Hosea <coughs> to introduce this matter, and then the firmer, but nevertheless most gracious approach of Joel to the whole question of the day of the Lord, then suddenly we find ourselves in the atmosphere of the book of Amos. Very different to both Hosea and Joel uh, is Amos' uh, approach. There are so, so many warped ideas prevalent today about the judgment of God. You either find people who are so sweetly sentimental that God doesn't judge a fly, or you get the other people who just frankly love judgment as a theme. 
they just love to think about everything being judged and they love to listen to judgment being called down in fiery terms from heaven upon all the unsaved as long as there's no question of judgment for themselves. Everyone loves to hear about the fiery fate uh, of those that um, uh, are difficult and uh, present us with very real difficulty. There are, of course, some people who uh, are disciplinarians uh, by nature and um, therefore love the atmosphere of divine, as they think, of divine judgment. But the idea is warped. And that's why this little book of Amos has been given over to a studied examination of the whole subject of divine judgment. It is therefore very interesting to note how the Holy Spirit not only leads us into this matter with care and diligence, gradually, step by step, to try and break off distorted ideas, first with the prophet Hosea and then with the prophet Joel, and then to take the other side of the most direct and clear presentation of judgment. On the one side, there's no compromising uh, in this matter of the inevitability and the necessity of divine judgment. But on the other hand, the Holy Spirit has taken great care to try and somehow divest us, if only we've had ears to hear, to divest us of wrongful, wrongful ideas about this subject. Amos, as a man, arrests us. He must arrest us. The more, I, more I've studied the man, Amos, the more arrested I have become by him. I find him a most remarkable man in every way. He rises suddenly from obscurity. We don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We don't know his line. We don't know anything about his family at all. It's just as if he represents the countless ordinary, insignificant families that make up a nation. He just rises out of obscurity suddenly. Suddenly he's presented to us. He is a countryman a true countryman in every way, who it would seem was never able to adjust to city life. He, he was given a message and was told, as far as we know, to go to a very elegant and refined cultural centre, Bethel. And as far as we know, he probably had quite a lot to do with the great commercial centre of the day, which was Samaria. But he could never, although he, he had to live there, and although he had to deliver his message there, he was a true countryman at heart, and it comes out in every single phrase. He was not able to adjust himself to city life. In every way, he reveals his country background and, I'm afraid, his country manners. For instance, he calls the sisters cows. Uh, in one place. I'm sure it wasn't appreciated by the very elegant and uh, rich, luxury-loving ladies uh, of Israel. But in one place he begins a great discourse with, O ye cows of Bashan, who plead with their husbands to give them this and that and the other and the other and the other. See, the man is a countryman. His manners are, are from the countryside. Everything betrays his, his background. 
And yet, he is the possessor, and here is the paradox, of a most acute intelligence. And he is well versed, so it would seem, in the history, as well as the current affairs, of not only his own nation, but of all the surrounding nations. It is quite a paradox to discover uh, that Amos has, is so knowledgeable and has such an acute uh, and perceptive uh, in intelligence. Nevertheless, he belonged tenaciously to the country and to the poor. Uh, he was, uh, it seems when you read his prophecies that he was proud to belong to the peasantry. He was proud to belong to the poor. And one of the most interesting facets of his ministry is that he rarely ever trounces the poor. Much of his ministry is directed against the influential, the powerful, and the rich of his day. And in this respect, he prefigures the Lord Jesus, who hardly ever had a, word, a harsh word to say uh, about the poor. And another thing that's interesting about Amos, in his ministry, he reveals himself as a very stern and somewhat hard, direct kind of man. Uh, but if he is that, it is that those very features that God has used to di divinely constitute him a champion of all that is just and right. It's been said in history that when God wanted to turn a continent upside down, he took a Luther. And it is true, again and again, that when God does want to do something uh, rather akin to this, he does often take a man of this type of caliber. He is an absolute champion of all that's just and all that's right, not in a condescending way, not in a superior way, but in a very, very firm and wonderful way. He's the kind of pers person that if anyone couldn't get uh, any action in a court or couldn't get through with the influential and powerful people of the day, they went to Amos. And Amos was the type of man who was the champion uh, of such people. His style is simple, but it's vivid and it's vigorously strong. All his illustrations are from the everyday life of the countryman. The loveliest aspects, apart from the message, in this little book of Amos is its delightful illustrations. If you know anything about uh, Israel and about the uh, country life of the people, this book is full of the most delightful illustrations taken from the countryside. Even the written form of his ministry still preserves for us the dramatic and direct uh, delivery which he had, both forcible and absolutely pointed. Uh, Amos didn't believe in dressing anything up elegantly. He got right to the point uh, in a few words and with a few illustrations. Most forcible and most dramatic. I loved the way that he says in two or three places, for instance, when he begins a great discourse, he starts with the people, the nations that everyone hates. 
and says, the Lord's going to judge them. And I can just imagine everyone saying, oh, how wonderful. And then he takes the nations a little nearer, and they say, oh, how wonderful. You know, these terrible enemies of us. Then he comes right to their blood relations, Edom and Ammon and Moab, and they were a little bit quiet then. Then he comes to Judah, and some, no doubt, thought, yes, Judah deserves it. And then all of a sudden, he comes right down to Israel themselves and spends quite a long time, longer on them, than he spent on all the others put together. That's the kind of dramatic delivery that God gave to the prophet Amos. Another place, he says a wonderful thing, which only if we understand the background do we realize how dramatic it was, when he said, the Lord chose you out of all the peoples of the earth. And everyone thought, ah, yes, that's that's right, that's right. Therefore, the Lord will punish you. That was the dramatic uh, style that... Amos had. He held their attention and then pulverized them uh, when they were all sort of really interested. The point was that everyone said, we are the chosen people. We are. It doesn't matter what happens. We are the chosen people and God will not forsake us because we are the chosen people. So you can understand that God has given to uh, the prophet Amos a somewhat <laughs> remarkable style combined with uh, a simple, rustic background, and a stern, severe, strong nature. The book of Amos is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. The two most important quotations, I think, are found in Acts 7, 42 and 43, and in Acts 15, 16, 17, and 18. Now, can we say anything about the authorship and the date about, uh, of this book? The book claims, if you look at um, Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, it claims to be the words of Amos, a herdsman of Tekoa in Judah, who was called to minister in Israel in the reign of Azar of Judah and Jeroboam II of Israel. That's what the book claims to be. The words of this prophet Amos and it tells us who he was, what his occupation was. He was a herdsman. The word is a technical word. I'll explain in a few moments. It's a very interesting technical word, sheep raiser or breeder, really, um, of Tekoa, which was a city down here in uh, Judah. Tekoa mentioned yes, in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he was called from the southern kingdom to minister and served the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel. He dates it, he dates this book, and he's one of the few prophets, of course, who's very explicit in dating, by telling us that it was two years before the earthquake. Evidently, this earthquake was a notable earthquake, so notable, in fact, that it was mentioned almost three centuries later in, by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, I think, and verse 5, where Zechariah um, says about the earthquake in the days of Isaiah of Judah. It was evidently a most important time landmark uh, in the minds of God's people. Uh, so we have that little uh, clue to dating, but it doesn't help us a lot because we have no means of knowing when the earthquake occurred. Uh, Josephus tells us, and this is very interesting, in his history, that 
there was a violent and tremendous earthquake at the moment when Isaiah sought to enter into the holiest place of all with the incense, to burn incense in a golden censer. Do you remember? And when the, prefect, when the priests withstood him, he was struck with leprosy. Now, Josephus records a tradition, a Jewish tradition, that at the moment he was struck with leprosy, a terrible earthquake hit um, Judah and Israel. Well, there was. That's just a tradition, but it is the only earthquake of any account that we have even uh, a mark uh, or a note on in any contemporary history. We have, uh, you see, so really it means that um, not having any means of, of knowing when the earthquake occurred, we can only uh, tie down the dating of this book to the time when Isaiah and Jeroboam's reigns overlapped. They ran uh, parallel for 38 years. So between these two, Jeroboam II of Israel and Isaiah of Judah, whilst the two uh, ran parallel, uh, there reigns um, sometime during that period, Amos ministered. The unity of the whole book is quite apparent, and uh, its authorship is generally ascribed by scholars to Amos. There's quite, on the whole, unanimity about the question of authorship. A number, however, maintain that there are interpolations and additions by later writers and by later editors. But we must put over against that, that this view is based entirely and completely on the assumption that certain theological conceptions belong to a far later date than uh, that of Amos. Most conservative scholars would therefore not in any way uh, ascribe to that view. So it would seem clear that Amos is the author and that during the time when both Azad in the south and Jeroboam in the north reigned, he prophesied. It would seem quite likely um, that uh, it was shortly before Jeroboam II's death that uh, um, Amos began uh, to minister. So if that is the case, we can approximately um, uh, we can uh, approximately place the um, writing of this book at about 755 uh, uh, BC. It's been suggested and is quite probable that Amos's ministry did not last very long. Uh, in this con connection, it's interesting to note the Revised Standard Version, the marginal note on uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, which says, during two years. It's, it, the usual version says, two years before the earthquake. But here, it's in, this, in the marginal note, it says, or during the two years before the earthquake. It's interesting that there is a tradition, and it seems in that, eyes of many scholars to be a probability that Amos was one of the prophets who um, had a very brief ministry. He came out of his general normal occupation in Tekoa, 
uh, exercised this brief ministry over a few years and then went back to Tekoa uh, uh, to his everyday and usual uh, occupation. Most of the book is in poetic form. Now, can we say anything about the background of Amos? What we have already said uh, recently about Hosea's background serves also for the background of Amos. I don't know whether you can remember anything that we said about Hosea's background, but if you can, it serves in the same way for Amos as well. There is a little, however, that I would like to add uh, to just focus attention upon Amos's background and give us a greater understanding, I think, of the man and his message. In about 803 BC, Assyria decisively defeated Syria. And then, having defeated Syria, she returned to quite preoccupied with internal problems in Assyria and also with problems in other regions in the north. And this gave a freedom, a remarkable phase of freedom to Israel that she had not enjoyed for many years. And it was whilst this phase of freedom lasted, without any threat from Assyria, that Israel expanded once more, regained all her lost territory, extended her boundaries, and became more prosperous uh, and, pe and peaceful than she had ever been since the days of Solomon. There are one or two other things, if you cast your mind back to what I've already said about Hosea, this will pinpoint a few more things. All the main, listen, all the main trade routes lay across Israelite territory. And because the Assyrian threat had been removed, it suddenly blossomed into a great commercial center with all the trade routes from the ancient East crisscrossing across it. And of course, all the goods of the different countries pouring in and through is Israel. The result was that it brought, all the trade, brought an unprecedented prosperity to Israel. And um, Samaria, the capital, became a great commercial center, a tremendous commercial center, and a very strong and influential merchant, and that's a very important point, merchant class grew up. This was a, a, a phenomenon in Israel because they were an agricultural people. They belonged to the land, they tilled the land, everything was somehow tied to the land. Now, for the first time, an unbelievably powerful and wealthy class came into being, the merchant princes. They held the whole country in their grip. They ruled everything. They monopolized everything. Um, that has got to be understood. 
Everywhere there was building, and, and of course Amos speaks about it, things that are very familiar uh, with perhaps a hundred years ago, not quite so much today. Things like your country houses. Everyone had a summer house and a winter house, all the wealthy people. They had one house for the summer where they went and spent the summer months, and the other house they had uh, for the winter months, you see. They had a town house and they had a country house. All very familiar, isn't it, with uh, some sense in the last century in this country. All, all of it uh, belonged to a period of unparalleled expansion and building. One of the favourite things was ivory summer houses. Uh, things were all beautifully built and were all the, the sort of uh, thing of the day. That just, just was the final seal upon your social standing if you had one or two dwellings, and particularly if you had anything in ivory work. <coughs> the rich began to live on a scale hitherto unknown. And the poor became infinitely poorer, infinitely poorer. They became more exploited. They became more enslaved. They had no recourse at all and no, no chance of redress whatsoever. All the luxury commodities of other nations began to pour into Israel, and these luxury commodities, for the first time, became household things in the upper-class homes of the nation. Foreign ideas, foreign practices were the vogue of the day. Now, all this had happened simply because the Assyrian threat, which so continually cut off those trade routes and um, held everything in an iron grip, had been removed. And so this whole phase of prosperity and everything blossomed. Now that's why the people of Israel were so sure that they were, it was the dawn of a new and more wonderful day. Not, of course, the poor people. They saw through it only too clearly. For them it meant nothing but misery and slavery. But for the rich, for the upper classes, for the ruling classes, it was a new day. Everything was secure, everything was prospering, businesses were expanding, everything was being extended, and of course to find a prophet, a country yokel, uh, sort of come barging in uh, to this atmosphere and start to talk about the judgment of the Lord and the day of the Lord being so near that it was all going to be destroyed, they couldn't believe it. Yet the most amazing fact in history is this, that within a, a short, one short generation, the whole nation had been deported. And the, only the poor, the enslaved, poor, exploited ones were left in freedom upon the ground. Those wealthy, rich people were the people that were led away. One of Amos's most terrible prophecies is when he tells these women that he calls cows, he says, the time's going to come when they're going to put hooks through your lips and drag you away into Assyria. And that is exactly what happened. These wonderfully uh, clad and uh, luxury-loving women uh, that would uh, compare with any of our ladies of today had hooks like fish hooks jabbed through their lips. And in some of the reliefs that uh, still remain, we, you can see it, they were dragged away in utter uh, humiliation to become chattels in another country. Well, you see, 
that's something of the background. One other point which has bearing upon Amos and is very interesting. All the wealthy landowners and the merchant princes bought up the land. They engineered things in such a way that the poor, the poor smallholder and peasant farmer was put into such a terrible position that in the end he had to sell. And they bought the land from under him and enslaved him and his family as uh, serfs on their ground. And as this happened, and they monopolized more and more the uh, agricultural economy of the, of the nation and owned more and more of the actual ground upon which people worked, so um, the lot of the smallholder and the peasant farmer became more and more precarious. And the inevitable drift began from the land to the city. <clears throat> now, all this may not mean much to some people, but you see, it's all a background to Amos's ministry because it was that phenomenon of the rise of an urban population, a city-living and town-dwelling people, that was to be the background of so much of Amos's ministry. You see, it gave rise to these simple country peasant folk as they were herded together into a life that was completely unnatural to them. So every kind of vice sprang up, every kind of evil, moral laxity, and everything else. This was the, uh, the whole uh, background, as it were, an atmosphere of the, of the ministry of the prophet um, Amos. It was in all that superficial religiousness, everyone was very <coughs> religious, of course, uh, utter disregard for truth, for purity, for honesty, for justice, for anything like that, the amazing power that the rich held in their hands, the way they could bribe justice, uh, there was no, no hope for anyone. Well, that's the situation into which Amos comes. Do we know anything about Amos himself? Amos, the name, means burden bearer or born of God. And he is not to be uh, confused with Amos, who was the father of Isaiah. There's a different Amos altogether. We, are, we understand that he was brought up in, born and brought up in Judah, in Tekoa, which was a fortified, a small fortified town on the edge of the, um, the pasture, the great vast open pasture lands or wilderness as it's called of Judea. It was in that part that we call the hill country of, Ju of Judah. Um, this has all got bearing upon him. It's Tekoa is five to six miles southeast of Bethlehem and just a little way uh, from it lay the great highway of the nation that went down to the south, Beersheba, Hebron, Jerusalem, and then up to the north. That's why it is probable that much of um, Amos's knowledge, as a boy at any rate, was learnt from uh, the caravans and everything that were passing all the time, a little way from his village. It is or will always remain a mystery. Where did he learn all that he learned? Because he was remarkably... Uh, knowledgeable when it came to the affairs and the history of other nations. 
Um, then again, he was not an aristocrat, as we have said, nor was he from the upper classes. He belonged to the simple peasantry of the land. It's quite possible that he was a smallholder, and that may give key, a key to a lot of his sense of injustice. Um, or at least he owned a flock of sheep. The word used in Amos 1.1 is a different one to the word used in Amos 7.14. It says the words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa. This is a technical word. Um, it's a very interesting technical word. It's only used once elsewhere in scripture, and it's used of the king of Misha, uh, king of Moab, a man called Misha, who was also called a herdsman um, or a sheep breeder. Uh, it's um, a word which has reference, it's a technical expression, you'll find that other reference, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 4. It means a sheep breeder and has special reference to a certain kind or breed of desert sheep, very short-legged and supposed to be terribly ugly the vilest faces. There's an old Arab uh, proverb I discovered, quoted by one, who's, with the, runs like this, I've just jotted it down, there's nothing viler than a nakid. That's the, one of these sheep. <laughs> nothing viler. It was considered to be the lowest and most um, uh, simple uh, kind of uh, occupation you could have. Um, well, now, that's interesting, but there's one other very interesting point. If they were very ugly and were rather despised creatures that, that lived on sort of semi-desert scrub, um, they were wonderful wool producers, and their wool in the ancient East was highly prized. That's interesting. Now, further to that, Amos refers to himself as a sycamore dresser, whatever some of you might wonder whatever is a sycamore dresser. Well, it isn't the sycamore tree, of course, that we know. It's what we call the sycamore fig. Some will probably know it better as the mulberry fig, or I understand also the fig mulberry. Um, anyway, whatever it is, it's mu a much smaller thing than the common fig, and a much poorer quality, and today is still eaten by those who almost subsist on the uh, near to the earth. Um, the poorest of the poor in the East still live uh, very largely on these uh, figs. They're not the ordinary juicy type of figs we know at all. They're little things that grow in clusters coming out of branches and so on. Uh, and uh, a sycamore dresser was someone who had to go up and puncture each one of those little uh, uh, figs. They would not ripen unless they are punctured. They, they don't ripen unless they're punctured. So the job, can you imagine it? Amos's job, the way the Lord trained him for his great ministry, was looking after the ugliest of creatures you can imagine, and the silliest. And on top of that, climbing up trees and puncturing uh, in his little small holding uh, these <coughs> very small uh, little figs, uh, which were the staple diet of the poorest uh, of the land. That was the occupation of the prophet Amos. And if anyone's fed up with their occupation, may it encourage you. <laughs>
I can't think of anything more humdrum, more routine, more despised, and in many ways more insignificant than the prophet Amos um, had. Um, it's more than probable that business took Amos into the cities and markets of the land, and it would have been thus uh, the, there that he saw and learned so much. You see, the wool, people didn't go and buy the wool in the places that uh, was produced. The wool was taken into the markets, and often that in entailed quite a lot of traveling and bargaining and so on. So he took both, probably both his figs and his, um, and his uh, wool to sell. And this will account, uh, coupled with the acute intelligence of the prophet, uh, would, uh, will have accounted for much of the way of the knowledge uh, that he learned of current affairs and of the nations. <clears throat> Certainly we can say that all, um, that all this, his humble origin, the unbelievable lot of the peasantry of his day, the general atmosphere of the Tacoan desert, gaunt, very gaunt, very gaunt, clear desert. His occupation, humdrum, insignificant, but with time to reflect and meditate and see the true values in life. It's interesting is that both Moses and David came from something of the same background. The, all these things were used to make him the stern, fearless, unyielding champion of righteousness that he became. Amos was called from Judah to Israel, and as far as we can see, he went to Bethel, which wasn't the commercial center of Israel, but was its cultural center. Bethel, of course, means house of God, but all good Jews called it beth Aven, which meant house of iniquity, as it had been set up in uh, opposition to Jerusalem. There is Bethel, there is Samaria. Samaria was the capital, Bethel was the great cultural center where the king had his temple or chapel and where the great calves, the great golden calves, uh, were um, placed. <coughs> uh, it's not e it was not easy for him to bring his message to such a people because he addressed it, be going to Bethel, to the influential uh, ruling classes of the nation. And they were self-confident, they were self-satisfied, they were exceedingly religious. They may have been very mor morally lax, but they were exceedingly religious. And for him to bring a message in an atmosphere of absolute prosperity, everything expanding, an expanding economy, and everything seemingly so secure and peaceful, to bring a message of terrible judgment that was going to come upon them all, not only them, but all the nations round about. It was no easy task for the prophet uh, Amos. They felt they were the chosen people, the chosen people. We've been chosen from all the families of the earth. And, uh, well, uh, we may not be all that we should be, but we are the chosen people. God will never overthrow his chosen people because we have been... Uh, Elect, we're the elect of God. And of course, uh, Amos was a very uncomfortable factor uh, in such an atmosphere. <clears throat> it's interesting to note 
the way Amos denies that he's a prophet. If you look at that, it's a very interesting point. Uh, Amos chapter 7, verse 14, when he is challenged by the high priest at Bethel and told to get out of the country and go and prophesy in Judah if he wants to prophesy anywhere because they don't want him in Bethel or Israel, um, he says, I am not a prophet, nor am I a son of the prophet, a son of the prophets, one of the sons of the prophets. Um, I am a herdsman and a sycamore dresser. And the Lord took me from following the flock uh, and so on and said, go and speak, prophesy to Israel. Now, Ellison, Professor Ellison points out rather interestingly that he, that it may well be that when um, Amos said, I am not a prophet, he went farther than just meaning I am not a false prophet or I am not a prophet, prophet paid, earning wages. It may well be that Amos did not feel that he was a real prophet. He, he may well have felt that he was one of those men that were called by God to exercise a ministry for a brief time, then to revert back to their normal occupation. It's very interesting if that's the case. Uh, we can only leave it like that. <clears throat> of course, there's an old Christian tradition that when he spoke ill-advisedly, so it would seem, to the high priest at Bethel, the son of the high priest clubbed him, and he was carried back to Tekoa dying. That's an old Christian tradition. They say that he died as he reached his native home. But that is only a, a legend. His contemporaries were Hosea and Jonah in the north, and Isaiah and Micah in the south. Now, can we find anything in the book, the key to this book? The key to Amos is very simple. <clears throat> it's the principle of divine judgment. Not just divine judgment, the principle of divine judgment. A lot of prophetic ministry centers around the subject of the judgment of God. In Amos, the Holy Spirit defines the principles that govern the Lord in his judgment of the nations and of his own. What are the principles of divine judgment? Upon what, upon what principle does the Lord act when he judges a nation, an unsaved nation? Upon what principle does the Lord act when he judges his own people? This is what the prophet Amos, by the Holy Spirit, gives to us. Of course, his message was a direct message to the people of his day. But the way it has now been put together and the way it has been given to us and the way it's been included in the Old Testament, to me, is an obvious, uh, obviously meant to examine and elucidate this whole question of divine judgment. What is the, the principle? What are the principles? of divine judgment. The fact becomes very clear as we look into the prophet Amos. He has a message for the 20th century and I might say to the nations of the 20th century. It's a chilling message. It's chilling because it's so logical, so rational, so absolutely to the point. My, this, this prophet with his ministry could well be found amongst us today, amongst the nations today. His his doctrine of national accountability, national accountability, every nation responsible to God for it, the privilege of living, for the privilege of its economy, 
for the privilege of its being in existence. National accountability. National sin, he is another doctrine of his, leads to national judgment. National privilege leads to national responsibility. Or would you illustrate that just from our own case? If God keeps this country free century after century and allows the gospel to be propagated from it all over the earth, then this nation, according to Amos, is accountable and responsible to God for that privilege. And if she does not discharge it, God will judge her. It's a doctrine that goes to the roots of everything. It becomes clear as you look into the prophet Amos that judgment is based on the light we have. Judgment is based on the light which we have. We see here the Lord judging the nations according to the light that they've got. Not according to what they haven't got or what they don't know, but according to the light which they have got. And when he judges his own, a different principle immediately comes into operation. It is the, pro the principle, it seems similar, but it is not. It is, the pro it is the principle of relationship to him. In all the nations which Amos brings a message of judgment to, he never mentions any relationship to, to the Lord. But as soon as he comes to Judah and to Israel, and he deals with them all, as it were, seemingly on the same basis, immediately he brings the Lord in and says, you have not obeyed the Lord. You have, be, you have followed after lies. And this is meant to reveal to us the principles upon which God, uh, upon which divine judgment uh, works and operates are not the same. How God judges the unsaved is not the way he will judge his own. How God will judge nations is not the way that he will judge his church. There are different principles upon which divine judgment operates. Consequently, the prophet Amos, I wish I could express it more clearly and more lucidly, is, um, um, has a wonderful message in actual fact. Because, you see, he is preeminently and supremely a prophet of righteousness. And, this, and with this we get to the root of judgment. All that is unrighteous, God must judge. Unrighteousness reaps inevitable judgment. It is an absolute divine law that if there is unrighteousness, divine judgment must come in the end, unless that unrighteousness is forsaken. Now, the whole point is, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? When you get to the prophet Amos, oh my, some of the things that he gets down to when he calls unrighteous, he, he sweeps everything, a tremendous range. Don't just think that he's talking about personal righteousness. Oh no. The prophet Amos may speak about personal righteousness, but he deals as much with social righteousness. And his doctrine is that social unrighteousness must 
we inevitably divine judgment. Oh, it's very interesting that in every country in the world in which there has been social unrighteousness, you've got the scourge, some scourge or other, either fascism or communism. Always you get it. Always. It's an inescapable judgment upon social unrighteousness. The people who suffer are always the people who have been guilty as a class, not necessarily personally, but as a class of social unrighteousness. You can take this into the realm of monarchy. Some of you may think I'm talking out the, out the back of my head. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. The only thrones that are stable at present and not tottering are those that are built on righteousness whatever you might feel about them. Every throne which has in any way been built on any kind of unrighteousness or has connived with unrighteousness, smiled upon unrighteousness, has in the end reaped the inevitable judgment of God. Every one of them. Every one of them. It is most interesting to see this. In every realm, you've got this question, social righteousness is one of the things that the prophet deals with. He deals not only that, I believe he deals with what we could call, I don't know whether you may, can make any distinction between economic righteousness. But you know it's everywhere in his book. Commercial righteousness. Commercial righteousness. And he speaks of deceptive weights, false weights. He speaks of eating creatures before they're old enough to be righteously eaten. Take count. That's one of the sins of this day. <clears throat> See? He speaks of it in one place. Little lambs. Those of you who like to feast upon little lambs. Unweaned lambs with a lovely dish. It's a delicacy. And so I can almost hear Brother Oliphant speaking on this subject. Unrighteousness when it comes down to the natural creation. Unrighteousness over the land. Merciless tilling of the land. Unrighteousness, says the prophet Amos. He says those greedy men even the poor, when they cast a little bit of dust on their head to show their humiliation and poverty, they want to buy the bit of dust that's on their head. They're after it. Then he speaks of national righteousness. Here's another realm. You see, you're going up from personal righteousness, social righteousness, economic righteousness, to national righteousness, the policies of the nation. And when you deal with some of these nations, oh, how the prophet hits them. How he hits them. Slave traffic. Oh, of course, Phoenicia would say, slave traffic. Oh, no, no, no. They just, uh, uh, they're caught somewhere else and they pass through us. Oh, we couldn't, we couldn't stop them from going through. But he said that because of the slave traffic in Phoenicia and the slave traffic in Philistia, Edom was the great slave trader. But Philistia, the Philistines and the Phoenicians, were the ones who trafficked in the slave trade. They allowed it to go through. See, they acted as the go-between all the time. In some cases, they actually were the producers of slaves. 
Romans. They, they captured, like brigands, whole towns and sold the lot into slavery without as much as any uh, a look of mercy or pity. Prophet Amos hits hard and says, because of that, it will reap the inescapable judgment of God. They will reap what they've sown. They themselves will go out into slavery whole nation, their little ones, their children, everything. You see, it's not a question of personal, it's a question of national. So it means that if a nation sins, even we who are part of a nation and may be living righteous lives will suffer in the general judgment that will come to it. Terrible thing, isn't it? But you see, this is Amos as a prophet of righteousness. I think a voice needed very greatly in these days. And you see, in all this fear of righteousness, right from national righteousness, commercial or economic righteousness, uh, social righteousness, personal righteousness, right down uh, to uh, the person, he gets to the root of something which I shall find it very hard to explain this evening, I wish I could, but he gets to this point of it being <coughs> righteousness, if I may say, in his estimation, is Zion. It's the most interesting thing that all his judgments begin with Zion and Jerusalem, and they all end with Zion and Jerusalem. Now, isn't that interesting? Although he's a prophet to the Israel, he says the Lord roars out of Zion. His voice goes out of Jerusalem. That's where he begins. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the sooner we get hold of this, the better. You see, the seat and the standard of divine judgment is God's purpose in Christ. If I may put it this way, Christ is the throne of God's righteousness and judgment, and he is the measure of God's righteousness. Now, if you and I could only get hold of that, do you know what righteousness is? It's not a thing, it's a person. If you and I can get hold of that, we should be very much helped. You see, righteousness is God. God is righteousness. You see, righteousness is not a cold, ethical thing of you don't do this and you don't do that and you do the other, but it's a question of a kind of nature. It's a kind of nature. You see, oh, I wish I could spend such a long time on this, but we'll never get to the outline. Um, but you see, it goes right down to the question of leaving one or two eggs in a bird's nest when you take some. Not taking away a lamb before it's got to the weaning period. Do you understand? Now, we say, oh, well, now that's, that's a regulation, see. God put it in Mos the Mosaic law. He, he made all these little laws. He said, you won't do this, you won't do that, because if they did, they would, these creatures would become extinct. But you see, it's not just that. It's, it's an expression of God's nature. When he said, when the Lord Jesus said, even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your father. You see, there's righteousness. I can't explain it any other way, because the whole natural creation's gone awry. But it doesn't uh, uh, alter the fact that God is himself righteousness. And you see, one day, what will it be when the whole thing is filled, uh, a heaven and earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness? What is it wherein dwelleth? Wherein dwelleth? It means God. 
God will just be everything. He'll be the, the fullness of the whole thing. Righteousness. Everything right. Everything right. Everything right between man and God, between men and men, between man and an actual creation. Everything. And everything right between, uh, with the constituent parts of the natural creation. Each part in a harmony. Now that's righteousness. And if you and I could get hold of that, my, what a difference it would make. You see, Campbell, Dr. Campbell Morgan once said, sin rends God's heart. Sin rends God's heart. It's not that it's, it's just something, oh, he says, a vile person. I'll, I'll judge that person. It's not as if God can take quite such a detached view from it. You see, unrighteousness is the perversion of God's life. Unrighteousness is the very taking of, the, of those things which represent and are expressions of God's energy and abusing them. That's unrighteousness. And that's the, 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 the fire that burnt in the bones of the prophetry when they, they flamed their message in. These people were taking the air, the ground, the creatures, the people, which, which God had created, and were abusing it, absolutely abusing it. That is unrighteousness, and it must reap the inevitable judgment of God. So, you see, with this, the prophet comes. His standard is Christ. His standard is Christ. Christ is his standard. And so, wherever you go, well, there you are. Uh, he, he moves through every single phase. He judges everything. Every part of it is brought into line with this question of righteousness. I ought just to note, you ought also just to note this. It's very interesting that Amos came from Judah and had to serve in Israel, but he did it without compromising. Isn't that wonderful? For those of you who are interested in the wrong and the right ground upon which God's people can, can dwell, it's a very interesting fact that, that Amos was called from the right ground to serve on the wrong ground, and he did so without compromising in one way or It must have cost him a lot to stand in Bethel and say, The Lord roars from Zion. His voice speaks loudly from Jerusalem. Doesn't it cost him a lot uh, to have done that, you see? It would be much easier to say, Well, now, the Lord speaks from Bethel. This is the house of God. Don't you know what that means? The house of God. See, it'd be much easier, but he didn't compromise at all. Though he was called to serve amongst God's people on the wrong ground, divided kingdom, he, he did it without compromising. His whole ministry was to get them back onto the line. Well, there we are. Here's, uh, I just put this on the other side. A very simple outline, fourfold in this book. The principles of divine judgment upon the nations and upon God's own defined. The principle of divine judgment upon God's own enlarged upon in inevitability of such judgment. Divine judgment upon God's own leads always to final restoration. Can we just very simply in these last moments just go through that? I've covered most of it in what I've had to say. But in this first section, we have a, a remarkable definition of the principles upon which uh, God's judgment operates. Um, 
I've already mentioned how he begins with the hated nations and works right nearer and nearer until finally he comes right down to Israel. Um, he begins in, if you look in chapter 1 and verse 2, he begins with Zion. I've mentioned that. But there you've got it there. You see, that's where he starts. This is his standard and seat of judgment. Do you understand? This is where God judges from. See, Zion is his unalterable standard and throne of judgment. You know, one of the psalmists said, there are set thrones for judgment. Uh, it is there that God sits to judge from his dwelling place. In other words, what God is doing, he's judging everything according to his purpose. What was the purpose of this creation? What was, it, what, what, what was the goal, the objective of God? Very well. On this basis, God is going to judge everything, which simply being interpreted means Christ is the standard of God's judgment, because the whole creation was created for him, for God's Son. Therefore, the Son becomes the measuring rod of, of, um, of, uh, the ju of divine judgment. Now, some of you might say, but just wait, how can that be when you come to the nation? Well, it's very interesting, because when you come to the nations, you've got six of them in all. The first three are not related to God's people at all, Syria, um, Syria, Philistia, and Phoenicia. And then you have the last three, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. They are somewhat related in a very loose way. The interesting thing is that this standard is applied to them now. Now, how is it applied to them? Well, it is, I, I, to go back to an old Quaker saying, Christ is the light which lighteth every man coming into the world. You see? There is something in the human race which acts, if left to, as a warning bell. It doesn't matter if you go to the darkest parts of this earth, there is something, some little something, which reacts. God will judge on the light that nations have. See? So if a nation is an aboriginal tribe, it will be judged simply upon the way it has responded to that inner light, that conscience, however tough, however hardened, however seared. There's some little thing that represents God's original thought there and they will be judged according to it. And consequently, so with every single race nation. Of course, nations are judged in time, individuals in eternity. No nation will be judged in eternity. Every nation is judged in time. So you've got Babylon, it's reaped its judgment. Syria has reaped its judgment. Egypt's reaped its judgment. And so we could go on, you see. We apologize to the listener but Lance continued his talk for approximately another 10 minutes, but the original tape ran out at this point.